Welcome to The Pursuit of Wellbeing. My name's Maria Brosnan, and I'm an educational wellbeing specialist and your host for this show. Here on the podcast, I'll be speaking with leading figures in education about the issues affecting schools and teachers today. We'll share tools and practical ideas to help you thrive, not just survive, as an educator. My guest today is Steve Waters. Steve has over 40 years' experience in secondary education, including as head of drama, head of English, assistant principal, and a local authority consultant with the school improvement team. Steve is a qualified counsellor and first aid for mental health instructor. And as founder and CEO of the Teach Well Alliance, Steve works in partnership with schools to implement a culture of staff wellbeing and mental health through his unique program, the Teach Well Toolkit. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Maria. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Lovely to lovely to meet you. Our worlds have been in parallel for a long time, so it's absolutely lovely to meet you. Sure, and you. I'm just going to start by reading a quote from your website from Christina Maslach from the University of California at Berkeley. And she says, people thrive in community and function best when they share praise, comfort, happiness and humour with people they like and respect. In addition to emotional exchange and instrumental assistance, this kind of social support reaffirms a person's membership in a group with shared values. I wonder, what is it about that, Steve, that stands out to you? That if you're working in any organisation, and perhaps particularly in a school, it's essential to have community where people work in teams, support one another, and where their work is recognised. In schools which are not like this, so we'll call them toxic schools, every teacher is an individual and tends to be fighting a battle on their own. Um, And unfortunately, in toxic schools, that battle sometimes is initiated by the leadership They pick off teachers who they think are not adequate and they then put pressure on them either to resign or, um, in in the worst cases, put pressure on them to such an extent that they uh, have mental ill health. So Maslach has been working since the 1970s on the concept of burnout and the concept of burnout is just is much more than physical exhaustion. It's complete physical and mental exhaustion to the point where you're unable to function on any level, not only in the workplace, but on any level. Um, and she has picked out six factors which contribute to burnout. Um, So we won't cover all six, but the key factors in terms of teacher burnout and how leadership approach teachers is, first of all, that they, if if teachers are not acknowledged for the job that they are doing, which is very difficult, um, if they're not praised, if they're not appreciated, that's a key factor uh, and sets them up for potential problems because no one likes to be ignored and no one likes their work not to be 
acknowledged, then she also chooses the factor of a disconnect between the teacher's perception of why they went into teaching in the first place, which is for the majority of teachers, the vast majority of teachers is values-based because they want to make a difference because they realise that learning depends on relationships, because they want to change lives. Now, if the values of the organisation don't coincide with those values, so the values are more to do with exam success, which is part of why a teacher goes into the profession, but is not the whole story by any means. If then there are high-stakes accountability strategies, such as hierarchical, judgmental observations, book scrutinies, drop-ins, um, and all the other kind of strategies which go along with high-stakes accountability, and then the values are missing and also teachers are not appreciated, then we've already got three of the six factors that are likely to lead to teachers burning out. And Maslach is quite clear that these factors run right across all organisations, large-scale companies, small companies, schools, um, health services. Uh, they're not unique to teaching, but what is different is that, in my view, there really hasn't been any work of any major impact done on Maslach's own work on burnout. So when I mention Maslach, no one knows who she is. Mm. Um, and it seems to me that this is a, a serious omission in teacher training and in teacher and teacher training courses after teachers have been qualified. If you look at the number of teachers who've either left or who are considering leaving, and it's a third of all teachers who are in their first five years of teaching, then they will refer to specifically to these factors without knowledge of Maslach's work. So it would seem only sensible that the government, the DfE, puts emphasis on teachers' mental health and well-being in order to stop teachers hemorrhaging from the profession. However, the issue is that recently the MPQ qualifications have been rewritten and new qualifications added. Can I pick up there, sorry, Steve, just for people who are listening from, from outside of the UK, what does the MPQ qualification stand for? Okay, so the MPQ qualifications are a suite of qualifications which are called National Professional Qualifications. So in none of the rewritten MPQs is there a module or any substantial work at all on teachers' mental health and well-being. And I think this is a very serious omission. These qualifications are only reworked every few years. It might be five years until they're reworked again. And I, I can't understand why anyone would miss that out. In leadership, it's absolutely essential that you create conditions for your staff to have good mental health and well-being. If staff are not in a good place mentally, how can they teach effectively and how can they support the children's mental health? And the answer is they can't. Yeah. 
And so going back to the, the points that you raised and the six factors that Mazak um, refers to, what can leaders do to bring those into the school? So when, when they say, you, you mentioned a misalignment of values, when a school leader is under such pressure from high stakes accountability partners like Ofsted or examination boards, et cetera, the department, um, what can they do? You know, so their, their values, they may have come into teaching or leadership with the same values of wanting to make a difference to young people and, and children, but they might need to readjust those values as they go into leadership because of the pressures on them. How do we address those really big systemic questions rather than drilling down into individual mental health and well-being, which of course is critical, but if the pressure and lack of acknowledgement is coming from external forces, what do we do there? Well, one thing that leaders could do is to take a risk and refuse to have anything to do with high-stakes accountability measures. <laughs> uh, yeah, tell me more. Um, so I interviewed a head teacher called Jeremy Hannay, who is head teacher of Three Bridges Primary School in Southall, London. And Jeremy comes or came from Canada. He's been living here for seven years. And in his province of Ontario, there are none of the high-stakes accountability measures that we have in the UK. So very bravely, he decided that in order to place his teachers in a position where they were able to do their best for the children, he decided he wasn't going to do any of the high stakes accountability that was, he calls the received wisdom. In fact, Jeremy calls it the biggest lie in education is that in order to get good results, you have to have high stakes accountability. Yeah. In order to get your teachers to perform effectively, they need to be monitored, they need to be judged, they need to be recorded. So in his school, he has no set marking policy. There are marking guidelines and teachers decide how they're going to approach them. So a lot of the marking is done through verbal feedback to their class rather than marking through the pen. He has no teacher observations. The only thing that he does is he walks around the school, pops his head into a class and asks the teacher if, if everything is all right or they need anything. Uh, and usually they say, no, that's it. He doesn't have performance management appraisals. He doesn't have walk walkabouts. In fact, he has nothing of what other schools and the government say is essential in order to create a high-performing school. He has been openly critical of Ofsted. In fact, in, in his interview, which is also reproduced in my book, which comes out on the 24th of this month, he says that Ofsted are the root of all evil in the education profession in the UK. His school is situated in an area of high deprivation. The the majority of the children speak English as a second language, so I think it's in excess of 80%. And in any one year, 30% of the children either come into the school or transition out of it. So he's not leading his school in a leafy suburb, white middle class, uh, supportive. The parents are very supportive, but they don't have the financial support that 
a, a leafy suburb school would have. So when I interviewed him in 2019, the school was due an Ofsted inspection and a lot of heads said, well, you know, so, and he also kind of a bit ironically calls his school the happiest school on earth. Um, so a lot of a lot of heads said to him, well, look, Jeremy, it's all very nice to have this happy, clappy school, but what's going to happen when Ofsted come? So Ofsted inspected the school, and the school got outstanding in every category, which is almost unheard of. It wasn't just outstanding in one area. It was outstanding in all areas. The results of the children were astonishing, given their background, and also because Jeremy doesn't have mock SATs. The children are taught how to approach the SATs, but he takes the vault the pressure off them by saying it's just another day when you'll have questions to answer like the ones your teacher has been t- t- uh, teaching you how to answer, so don't worry about it. Mm. So strangely enough, the DFE has not visited that school. It hasn't said you should look at this school as a case study. It hasn't put Jeremy in the position of being a czar for education. Mm. Why? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. Mm. And so if you want encouragement as a primary head, that it's okay to say, no, I'm not doing these things and still achieve, that's the model to go for. Now, of course, secondary heads would say, well, that might work in the primary sector, but it wouldn't work in the secondary sector. However, there are other schools led, for example, there's one led by John Thompson, who's had three outstanding uh, inspections in a row. And he has written a book called, um, I can't remember exactly the title, but it's something about leading through love, not fear. Mm-hmm. And he has very much the Jeremy Hannay approach. Um, so what I, I guess I'm trying to do with the way I work with schools and, and in the book is to say there is an alternative narrative. We've got to stop believing that the only way to get results is by putting such an intense pressure on teachers that they conform to what we expect them to do. And it doesn't need to be done that way. And if we get more and more schools saying this, and there are more and more heads saying, we've just got to stop this craziness, mm. then what I want to do is to, is to try and build um, a body of head teachers who are willing to go out on a limb, but not such a limb that there's no evidence for the success that they might get if they did so. So in the conference on the 9th of July, which is about staff wellbeing and mental health. There'll be a thread running through the conference where at the end of it, people will contribute to an open letter to the DFE. And the open letter to the DFE will be, there is another way. And this is the other way. The conference will include the 32 schools that wrote case studies about implementing wellbeing and mental health for staff. Um, and it will include other people who are equally committed to doing that. So before COVID, I ran a conference called There Is Another Way and had about 40 head teachers on that conference. And what we decided at the end of it was 
precisely what's going to happen in the conference on the 9th of July, that we needed to make a statement, but then COVID hit and we haven't been able to meet. So this is a kind of a way of developing that approach from there, there is another way conference. That sounds incredible, Steve. And and for, for heads or, or leaders or, or teachers listening to this, I'd, all of the details of the conferences and your book, et cetera, are all going to be in the show notes very clearly marked so they can find out how to book. But um, I really admire your courage and the courage that you're engendering in the in the heads that you're working with because I can see it takes enormous, it's a huge risk just to step outside the boundaries set by the department. and But it's getting to that point, and I think COVID has really pushed people to the edge. People that I'm working with in schools at the moment are, they're really, really suffering. And so we've got to do something different. But we have to offer a practical alternative here rather than just saying, just turn your back on all of this practically. If somebody's listening to this saying, I, I agree with you, how could I not agree with you, but I'm just not prepared to take that step. What what would you say to them? Or or is there is it that black and white? I don't know. So one piece of advice, it doesn't really come from, it's not advice from Jeremy, but he talks about what strategies has, has he put in place of the strategies that he's rejected. So, for example, one of the most difficult areas for teachers is the lesson observation, and it does depend how it's handled. But instead of lesson observations, Jeremy has lesson studies, which are formed of a trio or a pair of teachers. Lesson studies are being used in Singapore to good effect. So those pairs or or trios work together and they visit each other's classrooms. So a teacher can ask their partner, would you like to come in and watch X? Because I'm having a bit of trouble in getting it across to my class. So the other teacher goes and observes, and then they have a professional discussion, which they document, but that doesn't go to the head. Mm. And alternatively, they can say, I'd like you to come in and see what's happening in my class because something's going really well. Again, it's documented, but the report doesn't go to the head. So what you're doing is you're saying we don't need judgments to make teachers better. They can do it by themselves because the majority of teachers, and certainly the majority of teachers I've worked with, I've known very, very few teachers who have said, I'm not interested in developing professionally. Yeah. So, you know, why do they need to be judged in order to be able to develop professionally? The answer is they don't. Now, that's not the same as someone who is going through training. And that assessment process has to be hierarchical. It doesn't mean that they can't be involved in a lesson study as well. But once you've qualified, then why do you need to be judged in order to maintain a professional approach well you don't so that's one one way of doing it so jeremy's not saying my teachers don't mark books what he's saying is that the idea of taking 30 books home and wading through them and writing writing stuff in them is actually largely a waste of time because the children 
rarely read them. In some cases, where the children are young, they can't read the comments. <laughs> so what is the point of having them in a book? That's just for somebody else. That's for the head teacher. That's for the parents. But it's not doing anything for the kids. So why do we want a policy which doesn't do anything for the kids? So what we'll do is we'll say it's entirely up to the teacher. If the teacher wants to write in a book and thinks that will help a pupil, fine, you know, do that. But if a teacher feels that the best way of commenting on children's work is to give verbal feedback to the whole class about an activity that has been set, then do that. If the teacher feels that it will be useful for the children to make some comments themselves about how they could improve in the future, do that. So when Jeremy took over, as head, staff were carrying bags of books home at the weekend. And basically he said, it's entirely up to you, you know, whether you want to, if you want to carry a bag of books home for the weekend, fine. But I want to stop most of you carrying books home for the weekend. Yeah. You know, you perform better on a Monday when you've had rest on the weekend and whether you spend time with your own children and your own families. Because a lot of teachers, as you know, will say, my own children get less of my attention than my class. Yeah. And that's got to be wrong. Yeah. So it's not saying, right, we've just thrown all that out. Let's do nothing. It's saying, let's throw all that out. and Let's find a better way of doing it, which puts the teacher at the heart of their, their own professional judgment and their own professional development. Mm. And it cuts to the heart, too, of one of the biggest stressors on teachers, which is workload, and that a huge amount of their workload is marking. Uh, and to have a very flexible policy like you were describing there, and if they want to do it, they can, but there are, and there's so much evidence to show that there are much, much better ways to ensure that pupils progress than marking books endlessly. And it sounds like a very wise leadership decision to give that professional autonomy back to teachers. And then that leads back into the, the other factors that you mentioned earlier about then connecting them back to their own values of wanting to make a difference and choosing how they can do that. It makes perfect sense to me, but I'm not a teacher, so I, but, but I love hearing that coming from you. Yeah, and there are also some non-negotiables, if you like, that you know, we've always done it this way, therefore we'll carry on doing it. Yeah. Um, so I've got four children of my own, and so I've attended a few parents' evenings as a parent myself. And however many parents' evenings that was in the secondary sector plus the primary sector, I can safely say that virtually 98% of the time, the parents' evening didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. Mm -hmm. So if that were true, of the majority of parents who attend parents' evenings, and I suspect it might be, why are we spending so much of teachers' time having parents' evenings? Mm -hmm. So, okay, what happens if we don't have parents' evenings? So what do we do? So one school, for example, they abandoned parents' evenings. First of all, because it was taking up a lot of teacher time. Secondly, it's not a good experience for parents because they get caught up in queues because parents' meetings overrun. And then, you know, just from, if you regard a parent as a customer, from a customer service point of view, <laughs> pretty appalling. Yeah. And that isn't anybody's fault. It's just how can you have a system 
where a parent needs to see 10 teachers and then have 150 other parents who need to see those 10 teachers. It's almost impossible to arrange successfully. Now, what has come out of COVID is that a lot of teachers are saying they prefer parents' evenings on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And that's because when a parent starts a meeting, they're given the time on the screen and they know they've got five minutes and then the teacher can say, okay, I really need to wrap this up because I need to see my next parent. And if the parent object, well, it's in the teacher's control, unfortunately. So what do you do instead? One school, a secondary school, allocated half an hour a week to every, every teacher. I'm not sure how they went about doing that, but either it was 30 minutes of um, preparation time or director time was rescheduled. And, what, and they said, instead of parents' evening, what we'd like you to do is we'd like you to phone, we'll say in 30 minutes, we'll say a maximum of 10 parents in the 30 minutes. And you're phoning those parents to say something positive about what their pupil, what their son, daughter has done in the last week. And these, and you'll do that for everyone. Mm. And even if the pupil that you're talking about is, you know, disruptive or is not engaged or has quite a lot of issues and, and you know, causes you a lot of trouble, there'll be something that you can say about that child that is good. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be mind-blowing. It could be, you know, in the, last, in the last week, your child, your son, daughter, has come into my room, you know, with, with equipment. Or your son or daughter has not been late to my lessons, whereas previously they have been, so that's really good, etc. Mm-hmm. So what the parents are hearing is positive news instead of the parents only being contacted when there's negative news, mm-hmm. which again, normally happens in the school. If everything's going all right, you're not contacted. But if everything's going badly, you're contacted all the time. So the impact of that is that the parents then say, when their son daughter comes through the door, oh, Mr. or Miss Sonsa was on the phone and they were saying that you've come to class on time this week, you know, so great. So basically, the, the teacher is giving the parents a you know, a reason to compliment and, and praise their, their child. Mm-hmm. And because the parents are asked to do that, then most parents, even those who don't normally praise their children, will do it because the school is asking. And if they can then see that that has an impact on their children's motivation or their behaviour, then they'll do it even more. So the system to work has to be, it, it's complex because you don't want you don't want ten teachers ringing the same parents. Mm-hmm. So there has to be there has to be a kind of sophisticated appointment system, and probably the school had to buy in software to enable a teacher to say, "These are the ten parents I'm going to ring. This is when I'm going to ring them." And then the system then cut their works out that those ten parents shouldn't be contacted by another teacher. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's complex, but so is organising a parents' evening. Well, I think that the broader point that you're making, Steve, that's, that makes so much sense is, is questioning these things that have been in place for 
years and years and years and questioning the efficiency and the effectiveness of them and is there a better way we can do yeah. things to get yeah. better results. I, we could talk all day, I'm sure, but I, it's it's definitely time to start wrapping up. Would you tell us about your book that's coming out on the 24th of June? Yes. Yeah, so the strategies that I've been talking about are whole school, systemic, and alter the culture of a school. So well-being and mental health for staff isn't one-off or disconnected strategies. It's embedded into the school. So every decision that is taken is taken through the lens of, will this adversely affect staff well-being and mental health? And if the answer is yes, it will, either you modify it or you don't, you don't continue with it. Mm. So the book has a collection of chapters on, if you like, the theory of mental health and well-being. So there's a chapter, two chapters from Jonathan Glazard, who is yeah. a professor of education at, um, he was at Leeds Beckett, he's now at Edge Hill. And what he has found is a connection between pupil progress and teacher well-being. So if the teacher is coming into a class stressed, anxious, worn out, that will affect pupil progress. Then there's my chapter on buffer relationships. So the idea that a leader acts as a, a stop between external and internal pressures and the implications if that leader is not supported. Yeah. And then there are two research studies which I did, one of them in a 1,000 schools on teacher well-being and mental health, and the results are pretty awful. And then there are 32 schools who have each written a chapter, either the head teacher or the well-being lead, on how they implemented staff well-being and mental health. So when I was uh, teaching as a young career teacher, the idea of case study evidence was very prominent. So in education, what, what was happening was that schools were writing case studies about how they went about something, and then other people were reading them and taking out of them what might work in their school. Mm. And then for some reason, case studies went off the agenda. So this is kind of reinventing the case study approach. So if you're a leader or a well-being lead, you can drop into a chapter of a school that might be similar to yours or even in the same phase. And not everything that that school does will be uh, successful in your own context. But Dylan William said, everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. So you say, you know, okay, right, well, we can discard that because it just wouldn't go well in our school, but that's a great idea. We'll implement it. So taking as a whole, those 32 case studies have a, a wealth of suggestions about how leadership and mental health well-being leads can change the culture of their school so that they are placing staff well-being and mental health as a priority. You can't say, and all of these schools would agree with this, you can't say we put the children first if by putting the children first you put the staff last. Mm -hmm. It can't work. It doesn't happen. Steve, thank you so much and congratulations on your book. It sounds wonderful and I can't wait to to get my hands on it. It's, it sounds like a really huge body of work and really genuinely well done for all you've done in staff well-being and mental health in your career. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure to 
um, to talk about uh, mental health and well-being, and uh, I'm sure you realise that I could talk about about it for some considerable time. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, we've only got a limited time in this podcast. Likewise, um, likewise. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I've been speaking with Steve Waters, and you can connect with Steve on Twitter at TeachWellAl. That's TeachWell, A-double-L. The website is TeachWellAlliance.com. Steve's email is steve at teachwellalliance.com or you can connect with Steve on LinkedIn at Steve Waters. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Very welcome, Maria. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to access tools and support to help you manage daily school pressures, stresses or anxiety, head to our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends.